You guys can have a seat. Thanks, guys. Uh, this is your first time with us. My name is Andrew Pack. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, welcome uh, to this lovely space we've got one more time. Um, we are going to continue our study through Hebrews. We will be in chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. Uh, and we will be working our way through that. I will pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day. And we are your people. I pray that whatever is just of me, uh, whatever is, is, is out of my human effort or, or, or me trying to flex uh, of myself in any way would be forgotten. But Jesus, the things of you, the reality of you, the things that are unchanging in you would shine. The truth of who you are would be made manifest and clear that you are life, that you are a savior, that you are God, and that we would be awake to reality. Uh, we would be changed by who you are. Uh, we would be awake to what you're doing in the world. We would be awake to the reality of who you are in the world and that we would be changed and our lives would be lived in response to that. And Jesus, we love you. Just pray for this time, God, that you would move. Jesus, you are awesome, and we pray these things in your name for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Uh, all right, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Uh, today we are talking about the idea of what it is to be awake to reality. And I don't think this is a, an idea or a concept that's indicative uh, to Christianity or to the Bible uh, by any stretch. Uh, whether you're hanging out on the spirituality aisle uh, at Barnes & Noble or whether you're reading the holographic universe at your local community college or, or if you're just a bunch of kids sitting around listening to Unwound and discussing the merits of They Live, We Sleep by, with Rowdy Roddy Piper in it. Um, if the sunglasses movie, don't watch the movie, Wikipedia the movie, uh, but Rowdy Roddy Piper is a great actor uh, nonetheless. Anyways, so the idea is that, that we often are, are convinced, I think this is hardwired into the human uh, person, uh, the idea that there is even necessarily something more than what is uh, perceived at first. Uh, and as Hebrews is going to come back around to the idea of faith, we're going to come back around to the idea that hope and faith in Jesus... Help us to understand what reality is. Uh, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, uh, the only Danish philosopher, by the way, for those of you who are like me who are Danish, uh, Soren Kierkegaard uh, made the observation, and it is a right observation, that there is no more uh, uh, enlightened moment in a human being's life than they realize when they realize Jesus is who he says he is. There is no more enlightened moment in a human being's life than when they realize that God himself came and dwelt among us to save us from ourselves and to give us life, and the creator of everything came to save and to give life and came to wipe every tear from every eye and came to put the world back the way he made it and it's supposed to be. And, and, and though we can grow in the faith and we can grow in our understanding of who he is and we can grow in the Bible and we can grow uh, in the gospel, there's no more enlightened, awake moment in your life than when you realize that Jesus is who Jesus says he was. Now today, we're going to look at how that reality itself uh, or who Jesus is really keys us into reality, helps us under, to understand what reality actually is. So we will go ahead and dig in in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Uh, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is helpful that he gives us the definition, definition of faith here. Um, but what I think is important is we kind of dig down and look at what this stuff means. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, there is a German theologian who has an awesome name who you've never heard of, but his name is Helmut is his first name. So if you're naming a kid, by the way, if I 
if Joe comes and grabs me, my wife is overdue with our baby, speaking of baby names. If I just leave, if I put my Bible down and say, amen, I'm out of here, uh, I'm going to go catch a baby. So if that happens, hey, Joe will close us down. It'll be awesome. There's a story, getting off outline, of course, uh, there's a story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and apparently he was late to preach once, uh, and it was at his father-in-law's church, and he's like, well, I guess he's not here. So he opens up the Bible and starts preaching. Spurgeon comes in covered in rain and wetness from his broken-down carriage ride, shows up. He sees him at the end of the building. He says, oh, Chuck, you're here. Puts the Bible down and says, we're in verse 5. Goes and sits down, and Charles Spurgeon stands up and says, all right, here we go. Verse 5. So if that happens, that's what I'm expecting out of Joe today. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, now faith is the assurance of things. Helmet, that's where I was. Helmet Koyster, probably pronouncing it wrong. Uh, Helmet Koyster was a uh, New Testament scholar in the last century, and he points out that there's something happening in these words we need to be careful to watch out for. Uh, now, I always want to be careful when I start picking apart the translation we use. Uh, in my study of Greek and Hebrew, this is the number one thing I've learned. This English translation you have in your hands, if it's an ESV, an NIV 84, uh, an NASB, they are amazing. The number one thing I've learned in studying Greek and Hebrew is that English Bibles are awesome and they do a really, really good job of displaying what's underneath the text. But sometimes we have to look at a word and take it apart a little. And it's this word assurance. Because Helmut's going to make the point that faith, faith itself is not, um, not being illogical. It's not subjective. It's not one choice of many. Faith in Jesus is, is not a subjective choice. Well, yes, he sounds like the best option or, or, or whatever that might be. Or saying, yeah, I know it sounds like fairy tales and stuff, but yeah, I'm into that. that that's not what faith is. Uh, faith is actually much larger and bigger than that idea. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, this word assurance here is a tricky little word to try and translate. Uh, if you go with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, is another place where this word appears. I'll read it because this is my favorite intro of any book ever written by any human being. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has revealed himself in Jesus. He has spoken through Jesus. And the clearest, God speaks and has spoken, but the clearest way he has spoken is through Jesus. But in these last days he has spoken by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now here's my word. He's the radiance of the glory of God. You want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. God has revealed himself. The clearest way he's revealed himself is in, in his son. The, the clearest way to see God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And then he says this. And the exact imprint of his nature that word nature is the same word that's translated assurance. So he's the exact nature. What he's trying to get at here is, is that the better way to even say this would be reality. Now faith is the reality of things hoped for. The things we are hoping that God will do in the future. The things we know he has done through his son. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you can put it in a test tube and, and do, run an experiment on it and say, oh, here's faith, here's liquid faith, and here's the concrete evidence. But it is the concrete reality. When you know Jesus, you get keyed into reality. You get keyed into the song that God is singing in the universe. You get keyed into who he is and what he has done, and you get keyed into what God is doing in Jesus. To know Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, to trust Jesus, helps you to actually see and understand what reality is. 
And this, honestly, is something I think we're all looking for. If, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, you're probably here because you're looking for something. You're looking for what reality actually is, I think. Well, I won't tell you what you're looking for, but maybe. So it's not subjective. It's the assurance of reality. And he goes on. Uh, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. So we as Christians understand, um, and I think we've kind of played into this in the last century, we played into this a little much. Uh, in trying to make Christianity seem logical, we got very modernistic, mechanistic, uh, tried to prove things, make everything into uh, an, apologi- uh, an apologetics debate, right? If I can just show you this thing about this other thing, uh, I will arm wrestle you into the reality of the logical nature of the Bible. Now, I think this thing is brutally logical, this thing is amazingly uh, uh, proofed. Proofed? There's amazing proof here for us. I, I think the fact that the Qumran Cave 1 Isaiah scroll is unbelievably accurate, that the Old Testament book of Isaiah is brutally, brutally, brutally accurate as it's been uh, 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 moved through history and gets to us, right? So Qumran Cave 1 is this cave they find, and in the cave they find what they think are... Basically, it's firewood, kindling. But they find in a copy of Isaiah and a bunch of other old documents. And the copy of Isaiah they had was the oldest copy known to human beings. And it is unbelievably accurate as compared to the one that's in your Bible now. And what does Isaiah show us? That Jesus Christ is who he says he was. So much prophecy is fulfilled in the life of this peasant preacher that he must be God. I think it's brutally logical when you look at it. And at the same time, Christianity is not simply about what you can see or what you can prove. I have a dynamic, true, and real relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we have as Christians. We believe when we open this book and read it, God is speaking to us. If you are looking for God, open this book and listen to him. Uh, Now, I can't put that in a test tube. That does not mean it's not real. It's unseen but it does not mean that it's not real. It's concrete. In fact, God is more real than real. If God existed before everything was made and he made everything else, that means if you were to put what's real on a scale, the thing that existed before anything existed, or the person who existed before anything existed, that God is more real than real. Now, at the same time, the way that you meet Jesus and encounter God is in his word and by his spirit. Uh, now, this is the conviction of things unseen, that God made everything. Uh, we believe in uh, angels and bad angels and Satan and demons and all these things. We, we believe that God moves through prayer. We believe in all these things, and you can't quantify them, and you can't test them, but I've seen them, and I know them. That's exactly what he says is going to happen in his word, by the way. Now, uh, I think that there is a hardwired desire to see the unseen, to, to kind of get, to get beyond, to peel past the surface and, and look at something more. When I was a kid, I can't even remember the name of the show, but there was like a weird paranormal show that was on the radio late, 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 late at night. I can't even remember the name of it. It doesn't even matter because you don't want to listen to it. But man, we were glued to that thing when they were talking about Loch Ness Monster or whatever because we just were looking. We wanted to know there was something kind of behind the curtain, so to speak. Uh, And I think that as Christians in our attempt to try and be uh, so concrete and deal with the physical so much, uh, we've almost angled all of our apologetics and all of our response at secular humanism. And when I mean secular humanism, I mean people who just believe that this, what you see with your own two eyes is all we get. 
secular humanism, uh, just straight hardcore atheism, whatever you want to call it. Now, here's the problem that I have with that, particularly for us as Seattleites. Uh, I've met like one of those guys. I, I, I know almost no one who's a straight up, uh, this is it, this is all there is, period. And, and maybe that's Seattle, and maybe that's actually the world. Uh, now, they're great people and interesting people to talk to, and I think just like anybody else, they're looking to try and get behind everything else too. But I think if we aim all of our evangelism at something that nobody is, we're actually going to miss the mark. Uh, and we need to know how to deal with it. I, I think the way that they try and the sort of secular humanist or atheist tries to see past the veil uh, is, is really manifest in what many have called uh, the hermeneutics of suspicion. You may have heard this term. It's birthed out of the 1800s, the sort of forefathers of the hermeneutics of suspicion are Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx. So Freud's going to say, you know, every, every religious impulse... Uh, that is birthed out of the subconscious. And uh, Marx is going to say, well, you know, every religious impulse, uh, it's pie in the sky, it's kind of to control people, it's the opiate of the people, whatever that might, it's just making people feel better. Uh, you know, Nietzsche and his, uh, you know, his number one follower, Foucault, which has a fun name to say, uh, Foucault. Anyways, you know, they're going to say every religious thing you say is really to control people or to exert power over people. Now, there's a lot of way to diffuse those particular bombs, uh, but the biggest and most important thing to note in there, and that sort of what some have called the intellectual squinting, trying to, well, yeah, but what does it really say? What's really going on? Well, what's the problem with it? If, if everything, religious thing you say is birthed out of the subconscious, so is that one. And if everything you do is just a re- result of, every religious thing you think or, or perceive is just a simple result of uh, biological evolution, well... So is that one. If, uh, you know, everything, every religious say is to control people, well, so is that one, right? When we actually look behind it, it kind of ends up empty, and then you just end up as Jean-Paul Sartre, and things don't go well for you. Um, And then that will be my last French existentialism joke ever. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) Uh, Moving on. Uh, Now, the thing I think that we've missed a little bit in dealing with some of this stuff is the truth is our friend. Right? We believe God is the truth. Uh, if something doesn't match up with God's word, uh, we don't put God's word on trial. We don't say, no, okay, Bible, you prove it to me now. Right? We trust God wholeheartedly and assume that as things go on, that it will make sense. And, and sometimes it doesn't make sense at first, but we keep going and keep trusting God's word, and we don't just keep putting God's word on the trial, on the trial, on the stand, on the stand, Right? We trust it and we go with it. And we're not afraid of the truth because God is the truth and he's made the truth. And I think when we get into it, when we get past the squinting, we get into more. Now, I think the thing that we're dealing with more, and this is really me, I was never, I was never in that camp as a non-Christian. No, I was, I was a straight-up pagan. I, I thought that, that, you know, God was everything and everything is God or whatever it was. That, whatever book I read that week. Right? Whatever thing I found at Barnes & Noble that week, that was the thing uh, that it was. But nonetheless, I was a hyper-spiritual person. And I think that is the reality for most of us in Seattle. Um, what, we, what we miss is, and if we're not careful, um, sometimes I think as Christians, we can be spiritual with Christians and then modernistic with non-Christians or people who don't follow Jesus. What do I mean by that? So when I'm there showing my friends the cool house that God gave me, I say, hey, look what Jesus did, and look what Jesus did. When I'm there with my Christian friends, and God did this over here, and he moved over here, and he did this over here. 
But look at all the wonderful things Jesus did. But then when my non-Christian friends come over, my friends who don't follow Jesus are there, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you know, this thing really worked out for us. Yeah, we, we popped open the back, and it turns out somebody in 1960 put in uh, wash and dryer hookups or uh, dishwasher hookups that happened in our house. Someone put dishwasher hookups in there like 60 years ago. God did that for us. Isn't that amazing? But then when my non-Christian friends are there, I'm like, yeah, and we just found them. My Christian friends are there. I'm like, hey, look what God did. What's the problem there? Here's what happened to me as a non-Christian person. I looked at Christians, and they seemed really, really not spiritual to me. They didn't seem like they had this dynam- a dynamic relationship with the divine, for lack of a better term. They didn't have it, because I looked at them and be like, what's going on in there? And they'd be like, hey, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to play pool, there's going to be some cool kids, and there's going to be a little bit of Jesus, and you should come and check it out. My Buddhist friends were like, hey, man, we're going to go down to the Dharma Hall, and things are going to go wild. You should come check it out. Right? They had confidence that they were going to have an encounter. Right? And, and as Christians, we almost get like, I'm embarrassed because I believe these spiritual things, and you think I'm silly. But the reality is, man, I have a dynamic relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, and I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a believer, and that is true for all of us. And if I believe that I know God who is love, who made everything, know him personally, have a relationship with him, talk to him, he is available to me. Not only that, but he dwells inside of me. Don't you think that should spill out into the rest of my life at least a little bit? And honestly, I think it's ready to, and so often we're trying to fence it off. Stay back, spirituality. Keep, keep it in. You know what I mean? Like, so much so that we've almost even like, lost words like spirituality. Like, the yoga guys get to talk about spirituality, but, but we're not going to talk about that because that'll be weird. And the reality is, is that, that if we believe Jesus is who he says he is, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Not only are we the only ones, not only are we clued into a spiritual reality, we're clued into the spiritual reality, and everything else is a counterfeit. Let it spill out. You are more loved than you can possibly imagine in the person of Jesus. And your friends might think you're a weirdo. But you're clued into reality. Verse 2. For by it, that's faith, the people of old received their commendation. Commendation's a hard word because that word kind of makes me think of like, uh, I don't know, like police academy or something. Like, hey, you get an award. Here's your star. Bing. Uh, this word commendation is the same word that we translate as testify, as witness. It's where the English word martyr comes from. It's the Greek word martero. Now, martero here, only here in Hebrews, appears in a passive sense. That means that every other place, the word is applied to people testifying. Jesus is God. Jesus is awesome. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus gives life. That's testifying, right? But it's in the passive, which means the people here are being testified about. So by faith, the people of old were being testified about. Well, who's testifying about them? God's testifying about them. They lived keyed into reality that God is God, and that is the point of our life. As Christians, we can start to think the point of our life is a million other things, but at the core bedrock reality of our life as Christians is under, to understand Jesus is who he says he is and that God is God, and that is a very good thing. Uh, in fact, when we misplace this truth, which we tend to do, we miss the point of life because this is the point of life, to live in the wake of the bigness and the gloriousness of Jesus Christ and who he is. Now, when we misplace this, we do weird stuff. And most of it is we try and do something funny. 
We try and all of a sudden be God is, is one of the most common, I think, responses to this. And what do I mean by that? Well, we start playing God with our future, right? So if we don't trust that God is God and the king of everything, we start doing things to try and control the course in which we're headed, whether that's simply working too hard. And what do I mean by that? Hey, man, if you've got a, a family, 90 hours a week is too much work, Right? You can work hard and work a lot, but you gotta, you got to take care of your kids by loving and serving your kids, right? You can be in school. You can cheat. Well, I need to get A's because if I don't get A's, I won't get the job, and if I don't get the job, I won't be a somebody, and I need to be a somebody, so I will lie to my teachers, and I will get the A. Or just so my mom puts it on the fridge, and mom thinks I'm somebody. If I just get that A, she'll finally think I'm somebody, we try and control it. We can tr- control it in the presence. We either, uh, we either try and control others. Uh, we can white-knuckle our sin. We're like, oh, man, I know I shouldn't go and eat that fifth pepperoni stick. And instead of saying, Jesus, you're better than the fifth pepperoni stick. You're better than the last pizza pizza, Jesus. I know this is not good for me and will be very bad for me when I'm 65. Please, Jesus, help me understand that you're real and that you're better than the last piece of pizza, even though I can't even like, get the whole thing in my mouth, and yet the pizza is so good sitting right there, right? We do weird things. We do wonky things, and we do it with our past. And, and I was thinking about this a lot, particularly because this text is about the faith of the people of old, because it's really pointing to, hey, look what God did in the past through these people. We, we monkey with our past. We play God with our past in one of two ways. We can look back on our past, and we can think about all the horrible and horrific things that we've done. And we sit there and we feel guilty. And you realize what you've done. And you begin to condemn yourself. But here's the problem with condemning yourself. What does Romans chapter 8 verse 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you spend your life looking back on the past, feeling guilty about it, uh, trying to make penance for what you've done by thinking about how horrible of a person you are, you're actually sitting in the role of God and judging and condemning yourself, which is something you don't get to do. This is really different, by the way, than warring against sin. What I mean by warring against sin is we get the things out of our life that keep us away from Jesus. It's not wrong to look at what you did yesterday and be like, man, I snapped at that person because they weren't doing what I wanted them to do. And so I snapped at them so they would do what I wanted them to do. That was sin. That was wrong. I was playing God, trying to control them and get them what I wanted to do. I look at that and say, Jesus, I don't need to snap at them to get what I want out of them. In fact, I need to get what I want out of you, or not get what I want, but I need to lean into you and know that if this person's not down, then fine, whatever. But I don't want to control people with what I do. And so what we do is we hold it down, we look at it, and we say, man, this is what I'm up to here. Jesus Thank you, God, for dying on the cross, forgiving me for my sins. I denounce it, I renounce it, and I turn to you in faith and help me to be loving and kind because you've been loving and kind and forgiving to me. That's war against sin. The other thing we do is just like sit on it and be like, I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person. Well, in Christ Jesus, you're a new person. You're a forgiven person. You're a washed clean person. Stop playing God with your past. The other thing we do to play God with our past is we look back on our life and we think about, man, if I had just done that there, then things would really turn out. And if I'd done that or I'd been into that or I should have done this or I could have done this, and we look back on our past and we think about all the different turns we should have taken and then we imagine in our head how great our lives would be if we had done those things. Now, hey, wisdom's wisdom. If you look at that and next time you come down that road, you go, whoop, screw that one up. I'm going to take... Course B this time. 
Course A really was horrible last time. Course B is the way I'm going this time, but we don't spend our time dwelling on the past. The Apostle Paul in Philippians says, we forget what lies behind. Talk about a guy who had mistakes, things he wished he had done differently. I forget what lies behind, and I press on to the upward call of God and his motivation for that. I press on to make Christ Jesus my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so when we're playing God and monkeying around with our past, we remember who's God around here. And yeah, I'm not saying everything in yesterday that happened yesterday was perfect. I'm just saying it's forgiven. I'm just saying he remembers our sins and lawless deeds no more. I'm saying it's over. And I'm saying we can move on. Okay. Because here's the reality. Verse 2 again. For by the people of old received their commendation. He testified about them. You need to know because of Jesus, there's someone testifying. If your faith is in Jesus, there is someone testifying about you. Jesus Christ sits in heaven as your advocate. When you screw up, when you do something that's not consistent with reality, which is what sin is, you have an advocate. And you know what he testifies about you? Yeah, I know he did that. And yeah, That got paid for on the cross 2,000 years ago. And yeah, they are forgiven. We have one that testifies about you going to God the Father on your behalf and testifying, look what God, you did in their life. You saved them from themselves and even all this stuff and even the fact they're not living in reality. There's someone who testifies you about you. It's Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the way we respond to the testimony that he's testifying about him is us is testifying about him. We know God We know reality, and Jesus is awesome. Verse 3. By faith. So here's what he's going to begin to do. Uh, I am not, if you're watching your watch at all, you're like, uh, are you going to go through the whole chapter, all 39 verses? Because I've been doing that lately, and I do love to go through a whole chapter. But we're actually going to slow down through this chapter, kind of take it apart a little bit, because uh, he's going to drop these ideas He's going to talk about the creation of everything. He's going to talk about Enoch, which there's less to say about Enoch than there is about Melchizedek. And that makes it really hard to talk about him, but there you go. He's going to talk about Cain and Abel. And he's going to talk about like 15 million other guys in the Bible. He's basically going to choose the whole chapter to tell the whole story of most of the Bible. And then he's at the end going to say, and who has time for this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy? I wish I had time. Moving on. Now, the thing is, is that, that he's actually trying, I think, I believe he's trying to convey something to us through each of these stories. There's a theological reality embedded in each of these stories that are meant to key us into the reality of who God is. So we've got to take a little bit slow. Here we go. So verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made of things that are visible. God made everything out of nothing. That's the quickest way to, semi, uh, to summarize what he's saying. God made everything out of nothing because before there was anything, there was only God, and God always was, and God always is, and God made everything. This is a big deal. Whatever you're going through, whatever you got, Whatever your circumstance, whatever your situation, 
If you are a Christian, you are standing in that situation, friends with the one who made everything. The one who is sovereign over all things, who will in fact bring all things to a right conclusion, putting everything back the way it was supposed to be. That changes the way I choose not to snap at people when they're not doing what I want them to do because I understand there's a way, way, way bigger reality displacing that. I am friends with God who made everything because of Jesus. Jesus, who made everything, entered into human history and walked among us. This is unique. You will not find another religious text like that. God, who made everything, became a man because we broke everything and he's going to fix it. And God, who made everything good, is going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be through his son, Jesus Christ. My hope, when you're stressed out at work, is if you can key back into reality. There's something bigger and greater and grander than the 150 emails sitting in your inbox that all need to be responded to. I'm not saying delete them, right? This is not, hey, whatever, man. (laughs) Island living, just delete them, whatever. Take your (laughs) shoes off at work. But 10,000 years from now, how significant is each of those emails? He's trying to key us into reality in Jesus. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended, he was testified about, testified as righteous. God commending, testifying, him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. There is a lot going on here, and so we have to kind of address it as quickly as possible. Uh, this is the account of Genesis chapter 4. If you've never read it, this is where the Bible records the first murder in human history. Um, Cain and Abel are two brothers, Adam and Eve's children. Uh, they both come and bring a sacrifice and offer it to God. Uh, and in so doing, uh, Abel offers one sacrifice, Cain offers another. One offers an animal, the other offers grain. And some people have looked at that and said, oh, it must be that God liked the goat or whatever livestock Abel brings more than he liked Cain's grain, and Cain got hurt, his feelings hurt because God didn't like his grain. Uh, And and, and usually when people do that, they look at this overwhelming theme in the Old Testament of the offer of of animal sacrifices, but the reality is in the Old Testament, they also do grain sacrifices too. Uh, It's pretty clear it's not the thing being offered, it's the heart behind it. Abel brought his best, and Cain was just doing religious stuff. He was doing dead works, Abel, believing God is who he says he is, responded to the goodness of God. God, I love you. Take my best stuff. Take it all. I don't want it. It's yours. Whatever. And Cain was like, well, I guess I got to show up on Sunday. Well, barley. I'll bring him some barley. We'll see what he thinks. Now, of course, God does not think his barley or whatever. It doesn't say barley in Genesis, by the way. I'm illustrating I was going to be careful, because then you look and you're like, well, he said that it says, and it didn't say. Well, yeah, I'm tell- barley. Um, <laughs> here's the deal. Um, Abel comes with a good heart. Cain comes with a bad heart. God calls him on it, by the way. Uh, and Cain can't take it. And so he goes after his brother. He's jealous that God liked what his brother did. And instead of just doing what God told him to do and getting right, just doing it with a good heart, he comes after his brother. And this is the first murder in human history. The thing about it is is that Abel was keyed into reality. 
He was keyed into who God is and what God's worth and the value of God, and Cain was not. And not only that, that Cain gets so upset and angry about it that he lets it loose. Now, I think we need to be careful not to distance ourselves too far from Cain for a couple of reasons. One, man, don't dial it in. God doesn't want dialed in Bible study. He doesn't want dialed in uh, community. He doesn't want dialed in singing songs to Jesus. And I know sometimes you walk in here even, well, I guess this is the second time you've walked in here if you were here both Sundays, but sometimes you can walk into something like a Sunday gathering and um, someone starts singing songs and you know what, you, you had a rough van ride in with the kids and you don't really feel all that holy when you come on in here and you just kind of dial it in. I guess this is where we stand up and we sing. I'm just going to encourage you, you got to take a minute in the van to apologize to your kids for snapping at them or your wife or your husband or whatever. you got to pray together, get right. The reality is we don't come in here just to dial it in. We come in here as children of the king. We come in here as God's people if you're a Christian. We come in here to worship Jesus because of all the wonderful things he's done. We come in here with thanksgiving in our hearts. Don't dial it in. Be careful of it. It's easy to do. It's easy to do. So anyways, so we have Cain, we have Abel, we have it go poorly. Now, Hebrews says a very interesting thing about this whole deal, right? God commending him by accepting his gifts, and, though his, and, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, in Genesis 4, God says, your brother's blood cries out for me from the ground. I think this is to key us into a couple of things. One, uh, Abel serves, and, and I'm not saying it wasn't a historical event, I'm just saying he serves as a sort of uh, a pointer, a, what some have called typology, what some have called pattern prophecy. You can just think pointer. And as you're reading the Bible, always look, how does this point me to the reality of Jesus? Abel was a man who was keyed into the reality of God and Cain was not and Cain's response is to kill him. Jesus Christ is the one who is the most keyed into the reality of all things. And nobody recognized that. And what was in fact human beings, our response to him was to get him, to kill him, just like Abel was killed in innocent blood. And I think one of the most powerful things is keys us into the reality of God because the phrase is, God's going to say, his blood's speaking to me from the ground. God is the vindicator of the righteous. God does not sweep injustice under the rug. Though it doesn't always seem like he's moving in our timeline in these things, he is on the move and won't let it go because he's a good God. What does this mean for us? This means how do I love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me? We live in a pretty safe country where that's a little less tangible than it is for some. But how do you actually respond to people who are persecuting you, who are doing wrong? How do you actually turn the other cheek? If he makes you go with him one mile, go two? How is that even possible? Forgive? Forgive for that? I look at the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm keyed into reality. The A is going to vindicate the righteous and B. I'm not righteous on my own. He's forgiven me. He's the one who turned the other cheek to me. He's the one who went with two miles with me. He's the one who came and got me. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is not just something to put on a bumper sticker or a coffee mug. It's what he's calling you to. And you can only do that if you look Jesus in the face on the cross and Jesus in the face in the resurrection. 
And it's a beautiful, beautiful reality of our life as Christians. Enoch. A man Enoch. Yeah, good thing it doesn't say a lot about Enoch. Uh, By faith, Enoch was taken up. We're running out of time. I said that's why I say that. No, it's not a good thing. I wish I knew more, but here we go. Uh, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. You can read right there in Genesis. You don't have to go there, but I will read. Basically, uh, there's two Enochs in Genesis. Uh, One is Lamech's kid. And then someone's going to come down, no, not Lamech. I think he was Lamech's kid. No, he was Cain's kid. First Enoch was Cain's kid, but the, the Enoch we're talking about here is the seventh from Adam. Uh, and in chapter 5, verse 24, it gives us the biography of Enoch. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. Oh, wait, no, no. Verse 24, this is all he tells us about us, really, other than his age and such. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Okie dokie. Um, fortunately, Jude... These are deep cuts at this point in time, by the way. Uh, Jude 14 gives us a little more information. And in Jude, it, it talks about how Enoch was a prophet. And he was proclaiming the judgment of God and calling ungodly people who were not keyed into reality back to reality. Jude's a weird book, but it's right there. Jude's the book where you, if you read it, you're going to read it. You're like, this is one chapter, and I have like 15 million questions. But that's good. The Bible's not afraid of your questions, by the way. Just for the record, Jesus is not afraid of your questions. Anyways, so Enoch was a guy who believed God and told the truth about God. God is who God is, and he tells the truth about God. It seems, and this is a little bit of uh, postulation. Is that the right word? Anyways, it seems if you read Jude that the people probably didn't like it very much because people don't usually like prophets. Prophets typically tell God's people Hey, stop worshiping pretend gods. Hey, stop doing things that are not keyed into the reality of who God is. Hey, stop dishonoring God. Hey, stop finding your meaning, purpose, and identity from something other than God. And then they say, get him. That's how it goes for a prophet. So that's how it goes for Enoch. Now what God does here with Enoch is he took him. This happens kind of with Jesus a little bit. And I'm, I might be pushing it a little. I'll, I'll even go ahead and say I might be pushing a little bit. But you get these moments, right? where Jesus unrolls the Isaiah scroll, he reads the prophecy about him, they really like him at first, and they decide he's getting weird, and they decide to throw him off a cliff, and all Luke gives us is, and passing through, they pick him up, and they're going to throw him off the cliff, and what Luke tells us is, and passing through their midst, he went on his way. Why? Because God's God. Now, that doesn't happen for all the prophets, but Enoch, God took him. Uh, Again, I think this is keying us into the reality that our job is to tell the truth about who God is. Our our job is to tell the truth about who Jesus is and let God sort out the details, and God will sort out the details. Verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Okay. Okay. Kind of three big parts here. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So to be someone who walks with Jesus is to key into the reality of him. It's not to simply look at the Bible and say, that seems to be the most logical of all my options. I'm going to go with that one. It's to have a real, actual, faithful relationship with Jesus Christ. 
But the cool thing is that God wants to give that to us. James promises those who draw near to God, God will draw near to them. Uh, All who call on God, uh, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Not height nor depth nor powers nor principalities can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That dynamic relationship we have with Jesus is based on what he's done, not what we do. And we lean into and believe in him and his cross and his resurrection. To be a Christian means you love Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian, by the way, to believe him. And apart from that, you're not a Christian. That's the deal, right? That's it. That's kind of A plus B equals C, right? But hear this. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, or it could be translated, he is. It's a present tense, to be verb, is. God is, because God was, and God is, and God always will be. So if you're going to draw near to God, you've got to believe he is, he exists, if you don't believe he exists, I mean, it's kind of basic, right? Like, if you don't believe he exists, you're not going to draw near to him. But the thing is, I think sometimes we can feel like there's all these barriers. I wish I had this experience or this other thing, or, or I, I wish it could just go deeper. The reality is God is available to us. And we can imagine what, like, that, like, deeper relationship might be like. I will wake up in the morning, and I will walk on water and never sin, and it will be awesome. And that's what people who have a deep abiding relationship with Jesus are like. The reality is is that God has spoken to us through his son. He has spoken to us through his word. And he draws near to those who draw near to him. So draw near. Because why? And that he rewards or becomes the rewarder of those who seek him. If you read this out of context, you think, oh, cool. If I read my Bible, I will get a mansion. That is not what it is saying at all. (laughs) Because what do we understand? If we understand if we're keyed into reality, like Abel, like Enoch, and we need to be careful. I'm not saying that, that be like Enoch, be like Abel. We want to look at what God's doing in their life. The point is that. But they're people who are keyed into reality. When you're keyed into the reality of who Jesus is, you realize the only thing we want is Jesus. That's it. That's all I want is Jesus. I'm thankful for all the gifts he's given me along the way. I'm thankful for all the things that he's given me to point my heart back up into the goodness and the graciousness of him. But all I want is Jesus. Jesus is the reward. A dynamic, deep relationship with God forever is the reward. You work hard for money for what? Do you know how much money was in your great, great, great grandpa's bank account? No, because you probably don't even know his name. Dust. We're chasing Things that will not last, that will not satisfy. Jesus will satisfy. Jesus is it. Jesus is God. Jesus is good. There is nothing more valuable in your life than Jesus. If you don't know him, there's nothing more valuable. There's no deeper reality than knowing he's who he said he is. That's what I'm after. Seek first the kingdom. The way to seek the the kingdom is to seek the king. The reward, in fact, is Jesus. So Jesus, and by extension his word, uh, Jesus, Jesus is our redemption. This leads us to redemption. 
saves you from yourself, saves you from that spot you're in, saves you in trying to find your meaning and purpose from money, gone. Saves you from finding your meaning and purpose and identity and being cool. Saves you in finding your meaning, purpose, and identity for where you live. Saves you from finding your meaning and purpose and identity in anything other than him. Saves you from all those things. Saves you from dead religion and dead works and saves you from wiling out. Saves you out from pretending to be God. Saves you from all of those things. It's called redemption. That's what he does. You don't get cleaned up. He cleans you up. That's redemption. Not only that, we get relationship. These are, these are the words of God. Now, sometimes we read it, just mine it for information, but he's here and will meet with you. He'll meet with you in prayer. He'll meet with you right now. He is God and he is everywhere, which means he can get to you no problem, by the way. We have this real abiding relationship with him. And there's the reward. And what the reward is is ultimately that God is going to wipe every tear from every eye. God's going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. And that heaven is not the place we go to ski forever or play golf forever or whatever anybody else... I think I may have said this before, but my a family member was literally, my, when my grandma died, they were like, it's just going to be soap opera televisions forever. That does not sound like heaven. <laughs> face to face with Jesus forever is heaven. Face to face with Jesus forever, the new heavens and the earth, everything put back the way it's supposed to be. That is the reward. Now, when we don't believe this, when we don't believe that he redeems us, when we don't believe that we have this relationship with him, when we don't believe in this reward, we fill in the blanks with other things. We try and get redeemed from... If I could just move out of Bellingham, Washington, and I could just move to Seattle, I will be a cool 21-year-old kid, and everything will be perfect. I believe that. Turns out Seattle's just like Bellingham. It's just like anywhere else. You know? It's another place. They're a little different, but it's another place. We don't have weird hippie burritos here like we do in Bellingham, but I digress. It's a mossy, foggy place. <laughs> but we think that if I can just get out of the situation or I can just, if I could just get married, if I could just get kids, if I could just get a job, if I could just get out of school, if I could just get into school, if I could just do this, I could do that, I could do this, I'll be redeemed from the place that I'm at. And then you get there. Dust. If I could just, and it's almost like there's always like a little bit more. Oh, I, I thought that if I could just get, I, if I could just get $75,000 in the bank, then I'll retire. And you get there and you're like, well, maybe $100,000. And then I'll retire. Uh, maybe $125,000. And then you die and you didn't retire and you didn't spend any time with your grandkids. Boom. Gone. It's always just out of grass because it turns out earthly things will never fill that void. And ultimately we're seeking some other reward. Money, power, whatever it is. We're after something else, and once we get it, poof. Because in it, we don't understand what draws us into the worship of the king, is that he set us free from all of those things. Jesus Christ makes us free. He gives us reality. Living in reality is freedom, because you actually understand how the universe works. John Calvin and his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, long, boring, don't worry about it. Cliff, note it. Most important thing he says in the first chapter worth the price of admission alone. The most important thing for a human being to understand is who God is and who they are. Because when you understand who God is and who you are in Christ Jesus, you're free. When you understand that he's set you free from everything that doesn't matter to love and know him and to love and serve others, you're free. 
And you realize the world's got nothing on you. You realize no one can do anything to you. You realize everything can be taken away. And you have joy and you have love and you have Jesus. And all of a sudden, we become the church that lives that way in Finneywood. We will be light in the darkness. You already are light in the darkness, by the way. But the light will begin to shine Because all of a sudden you can love people and serve people in a radical way. You can love and serve people material and materialize in a radical way. You can love and serve people by telling them the truth of Jesus in a radical way. You can live in a way that is literally out of this world, that is different from this world, because you understand what actually counts, and that's Jesus. It changes everything. If you don't know him, he is the basis for reality. He's the one that will key you into reality. If you're looking for reality, find it in the face of Jesus Christ. Came, lived, died, rose to save you from yourself to life in God forever. And what makes you a Christian is not getting cleaned up. What makes you a Christian is keying into him, turning to him, saying, Jesus, I love you. I want to know you. Forgive me. Save me. Help me. And he will. Let's pray. Jesus. God, you're God. I pray that everything about our lives would reflect the reality that you are God, Jesus, that we know you, that we are secure in you, uh, that (laughs) this world, the way the world thinks of us, is impressed or not impressed by us, is fickle. What we care about is you testifying about us. The testimony you have about us that says, I covered them with my blood and they get to live in my kingdom forever. I pray we would just lean into our redemption. We'd lean into our relationship with you and we'd lean into the reward that we get now and forever in you, Jesus Christ. God, please send us your Holy Spirit. Help us to worship you freely and to know you and love you this week. And this just wouldn't be about right now. This is about knowing who you are and reality on Wednesday at 11 when we're working hard or changing diapers or whatever we might be doing. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.